I'm glad you found your way to the Your Vet Wants You to Know podcast for more information about how to care for your pet. The show is designed to be educational and entertaining, but not to give a specific diagnosis or treatment for your animal. That job belongs to your veterinarian who knows your pet and wants to talk to you about what's going on with them. I'm here to be a resource only. Thanks and enjoy the show. As a curious pet owner, have you ever taken to the internet for more information? Maybe you want to know why your pet is itchy and what you can do about it. Maybe you're frustrated about the ear infections. Maybe you're looking for ways to make veterinary care more affordable. Instead of wading through a sea of information that may not be reliable and in some cases may be harmful, here is what your vet wants you to know. I'm Dr. Brittany Lancelotti, board certified veterinary dermatology specialist. Join me to get the information you're looking for to care for your pet. If you're curious about your pet, then your vet wants you to know. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Your Vet Wants You to Know. I am joined by Dr. Nicole Johnson, and she is here today to give us a ton of information on bearded dragons. This is really cool. We have a really, really special guest. Um, So I am very excited to welcome you today. Thank you, Dr. Nicole Johnson, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. And you are very much a reptile person. Tell me about your fascination with reptiles and and where this all started. So... When I was uh, about 16 years old, I finally convinced my parents to let me get an iguana. I started my love for reptiles with my first iguana. He was appropriately named Reggie the Veggie Eater. And it pretty (laughs) much just kind of blossomed from there. You know, as I went through uh, undergrad and vet school, I've had a myriad of different reptiles that have come and gone. Uh, But uh, currently, I actually have 10 tortoises of varying different species. Most prevalent of my group are my red-footed tortoises. I have one yellow-foot tortoise. I also have a hingeback tortoise. And then, of course, I have the nice, big African spurred tortoise, also known as a sulcata. Um, She's actually the one that has been with me the longest. She is the only animal that I currently own that has been with me since veterinary school. So she is over 20 years old. Um, I got her, I got her my last year of vet school and she was about a year old. So she was somebody else's pet that they realized they were not going to be able to take care of her because she was going to get so big. So we've been together for, you know, over 20 years. And that's not all of the animals that you have at home. What else do you have? Correct. Uh, I also have three prehensile tailed skinks. They're also known to many people as monkey tailed skinks. I have one blue tongue skink, a leopard gecko, which is actually my son's, but who takes care of it? That's me. Yeah. Um, And I I just recently got my first New Caledonian giant gecko, also known as Alici. And he's a tiny baby, but he will basically get to be about the length of my forearm as an adult. So they're pretty neat. We also have a dart frog, some about three toads. And then I don't just have reptiles. I do also have two dogs, which uh, my breed of choice are Akitas. And then Mm -hmm. we have four cats. That's amazing. And you come to us with a wealth of knowledge as well. You have been working with reptiles for a really long time, and you are the past president of the Association of Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians. Can you tell us a little bit about this organization? Yeah. So this organization actually started in the mid-90s and has really grown from there. It's an international organization. It has over about 900 members worldwide. We do have an annual conference that we do every year called Exotics Con. So it's grown significantly and it's pretty amazing to be able to have all of those international veterinarians come in and share their experience. So it's just a wonderful organization and loads of 
knowledge and information at our fingertips. So tell me a little bit about the species that we're going to be talking about today. What is it about bearded dragons that you like? So honestly, the biggest reason is that they've become one of the most popular companion reptile species. It's probably the number one reptile we see in our practice at this point in time. And uh, honestly, for many years, we've all been pushing for pretty routine veterinary care for these guys. Unfortunately, it's too often that we don't get to see them until it's too late. The goal for me with this discussion here is to really get it out there that when these animals are first brought home, we would really like to see them. Um, We want to have the opportunity to educate, develop a relationship with the pet owner, and ultimately provide them with enough information for a better long-term care for these guys. So hopefully we can keep your scaly friends living as long as your furry friends in some cases. Absolutely. You know, husbandry is so important for these species. And you've got so much information here about how to care for these animals so they have long, happy, healthy lives with their families. So is there any particular bearded dragon that comes to mind when you think about some of your favorite patients that you've treated over the years? Yes, there is actually one in particular, and I'll just kind of preface it with, you know, now that we know that these are some of the most common pets here that we see in the the reptile groups, We've also had to develop the need for reptile rescues. So Mm -hmm. rescues exist simply because a lot of pet owners are really unaware of the lifespan and the long-term care that a lot of these species need when they bring them home. So the bearded dragons, again, because they're one of our number one companion reptiles, they're also one of the number one reptiles that we are seeing in the rescues. A few years ago, our local animal control that I worked with quite a bit, they received a call about a bearded dragon left by the trash after the family had moved out of their rental. Um, Sure enough, it was the middle of November and I'm here in central Illinois. So it was about 30 degrees outside. Oh my Um, gosh. They go to the location and yep, there's a a little young hatchling bearded dragon sitting in his 10 gallon aquarium right next to the trash cans. So thankfully he wasn't out there for very long. He did not get that cold. We brought him, you know, back to the facility and immediately got him you know, warmed up and got some food going to him. And um, he actually did very well. He went directly to a foster home, which coincidentally ended up being me. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I had had everything that we, you know, that they needed. So otherwise they, you know, they weren't really set up for that. So they Mm -hmm. didn't have all the, you know, necessary equipment, the lighting, the heat, they just didn't have any of that. And obviously with all the creatures I have in my house, I already had their right types of food to be feeding him. Let me ask you this, because this is definitely something that a lot of veterinary families deal with is, all right, I've got the equipment. I have the means to take mm-hmm. care of this animal. How does your family feel about you fostering these animals? Um, you know, they. I'll say there are a lot of foster failures. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and a lot of times that's just simply because, again, we've brought an animal in that other people don't necessarily know how to take care of. So finding of the appropriate home afterwards isn't always what happens. But you know, I'm not going to lie, there, there are a couple other human members in my household that are uh, very guilty of not being able to let go. <laughs> so, so it's a little <laughs> easier, I think, for me with the reptiles, because I do have so many that I can see how much happier they could be in a home where maybe they're going to be the only reptile and they're extremely social and interactive with their owners. So this little guy, of course, we decided to call him garbage because that's where he was found. Um, <laughs> little little garbage actually did extremely, extremely well. He was adopted by a really loving family um, just weeks into, you know, his foster care with me. Once we showed that he had a really great appetite, he passed his vet check and everything went really well. 
it did not take long for him. He had such a personality and was super outgoing. And, you know, these guys are daytime animals. So I'm home in the evenings, you know, a, a daytime pet, you know, is a little, little harder. So by the time I'm coming home, a lot of times these guys are winding down for the night. So, you know, we went ahead and decided we were not going to keep him. And I'm happy to say that he's doing wonderful. That's great. What a lucky piece of garbage he was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about owning a bearded dragon. You know, for those people who might be considering getting one of these animals as a pet, what kind of things should they expect as far as the lifespan? You know, what type of pet it is and what type of personalities they have? What sort of equipment do they need? Yeah, this is probably going to be one of the longest portions of our talk because mm -hmm. I, I don't think people quite realize the extent of what they are getting into when they see these little guys. But, you know, as I mentioned, they're, they're really one of the most popular reptile pets. And for good reason, they are extremely interactive with their owners. They get to a pretty decent handleable size, even for children. And the more you handle them, the more docile they are. And they're not very inclined to bite, unlike some of our larger lizard species. Their enclosures don't take up nearly as much space as some of our larger lizard species, either like our iguanas, our monitors. You know, these guys need quite a bit of space. You know, the bearded dragons can get away with a lot less, especially if they're, you know, handleable enough to where they're able to be out and about and not spend all of their time in their enclosure and can actually interact with their parents. That's easier for them to do because yes. they're less likely to bite your finger off than right. some of the other exactly. <laughs> species. Exactly. Um, but there's definitely a lot of things to really consider when you're looking at adding a bearded dragon to your family. We need to plan on longevity. These guys are not going to be like a hamster that when your child maybe loses interest in, you know, a few months, it's only going to be around for a couple of years. Our bearded dragons, their average lifespan is, is 10 years. You know, you buy a bearded dragon for your teenager. Where's he going? Is he going to him when he goes to college or is he staying with you? You know, these are things to think about what is going to happen to him, you know, over the course of the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something to take some responsibility for and some long-term planning. Yes, exactly. Uh, the size of these guys. You know, many people are heading to the pet store and they're seeing these cute little hatchlings that are the size of your finger. It is going to grow to be a good 18 to 24 inches long, including the tail. So, you know, think about, you know, the length of your forearm. You know, they're going to be a good enough size to pick up and carry around. So what are you going to do? You brought them home in that little... 10 gallon prefab setup, but he's not going to be able to live in that for the remainder of his life. So you do, again, have to think a little bit further than, you know, just these next few months. So Dr. Johnson, how big of a tank do you think these animals need? What's the ideal space for them to have? You know, honestly, you know, the largest enclosures that you can find in most pet stores are often referred to as a 40 gallon breeder tank. They're typically about three feet long, by about a foot and a half wide and a foot and a half high. And most of our adult bearded dragons really ideally could use a bit more space than that. Um, so what we're seeing is that there are more companies that are specializing in some larger custom-built enclosures that are designed to give these guys more floor space. Now, believe it or not, you can find a lot of these actually on, on Amazon. I do have some links to some of these different enclosures, but you know, four feet by two feet by two feet high, Bearded dragons will climb. They will climb. So what you can find in the pet stores, I wouldn't consider it sufficient for an adult bearded dragon um, for the, the rest of his life. What about their, their ideal temperature? What are they like? Yeah, so ideal for these guys. Bearded dragons here in the United States are usually inland bearded dragons. Um, their scientific name is Pagona viticeps, which these guys are native to Australia. So we already have to start thinking hot, hot, hot. 
these guys need special lighting. They need special heat sources to provide them as close to their natural temperatures as possible. We need UVB lights that are essential to providing optimal digestion and absorption of our vitamin D3 and calcium. And these lights over time will actually diminish in their UVB output. So ideally we should be replacing those UVB lights at about every six months. You might be able to go a little bit longer, but if you are gonna try to push it, then I'm gonna recommend that you actually get a UVB reader so you can actually read the output that is coming from your light. Those run a couple hundred dollars a piece. So if you don't wanna necessarily invest in that, then just plan on you know replacing those about every six months. I also recommend investing at least in a good thermometer and a hygrometer for the enclosures. Most of us know what a thermometer is. Um, hygrometer is actually going to be measuring your humidity. Uh, so that is something that when you take your pet to the vet, I mean, that's going to be a standard list of questions. What's your temperature range? What's your humidity range? And most owners can't actually answer that because they don't have a hygrometer, but they'll have a thermometer where they can at least give me temperatures. So as far as temperature, Temperature should really range from like the high 70s of 77, 78 to about 90, but they need an actual basking site of about 100 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. At night, a lot of those things can turn off. It really shouldn't drop any lower than 70 at night. Humidity should be between 40 and 60%. Yeah, these guys are from the Australian outback. However, when they get into their burrows, those burrows are actually very humid. So if we don't provide some humidity in their enclosure, they're going to actually have problems with shedding. Ideally, our lights should also have appropriate cycles. So about 12 hours on, 12 hours off. So we definitely want to make sure that they're actually having some time where there are no lights on. How about food? What are these guys interested in eating? What are some of their favorite foods and what are some staples that they really need to stay healthy? All right. So uh, diet. Bearded dragons are omnivores. So they're going to eat a pretty um, big variety of insects, greens, fruits, vegetables. This actually does change from when they are hatchlings to when they're adults. So hatchlings routinely eat more insects in the diet and a lot less of our what we like to call our, our reptile salads. As they grow, they do transition to more salads and vegetables and a lot less live prey. Salads and veggies should honestly be fed daily to an adult and should be a good 70 to 80% dark leafy greens, 20 to 30% vegetables, and only like 2 to 3% fruits. You know, fruits are really high in sugar, and they also don't have quite as much calcium that they really need for proper digestion and bone growth. So we definitely don't want to give them too many fruits. And the adults should probably have some live prey three to four times a week. On the days that they have their live prey, it should really only be about 25% of the diet that is being fed that day. So my biggest key to a diet for a bearded dragon is variation. So many people will get stuck on, well, he only wants to eat the, you know, the kale and he only wants to eat mealworms. So mm -hmm. if, if we really think about that, it's like saying, well, I'm only going to eat chicken and a baked potato and maybe have a piece of pie for dessert. How healthy do you think that individual is actually going to be? So, you know, we want to really give a good variety and, you know, honestly, that's really hard to do. So I will venture to the internet. You know, I definitely recommend companies that provide a variety of insects that you can feed. One of my favorites is a company called Josh's Frogs. I routinely have insects being delivered to my office. And uh, it's always <laughs> interesting because my staff is always like, well, what'd you get this time? So this particular company, along with another one called um, Dubia Roaches, they actually grow and breed their own 
insects. And I mean, I'm talking, yes, your typical crickets and your roaches and some of your mealworms, but they will also have waxworms and earthworms. So, I mean, they have so much variety. They make things easy. So for like the dart frogs, they'll have like a dart frog insect bundle that you can order. So, you know, they've tried to kind of, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, they really kind of tried to dumbify it down for us. <laughs> that way we can, you know, you know, give a much bigger variety to our species. So, you know, I, I do utilize the internet quite a bit uh, to make sure that I'm getting enough variety from my scaly and amphibious friends here, um, even in my house. I like the variety pack yeah. idea. I mean, yeah. it seems like, I mean, even like you're getting a holiday gift with lots of different variety of, mm-hmm. uh, of insects that you can try. Yes. <laughs> Sounds yes. really cute. Really yep. nice. Um, so, you know, are they getting enough water from the leafy greens and the foods that they're eating or do they need to have separate water dishes as well? Yep, they should absolutely have water available at all times. You need to clean it pretty frequently because bearded dragons are very well known for drinking and then turning around and then defecating in their water. And that's a very common thing that these guys do in the wild. So, you know, we want to make sure that we're obviously cleaning out our bowls and giving them fresh water, especially if they are doing their normal behaviors in their water because that can get pretty gross pretty quickly. That's, uh, I mean, it is very gross, but it's pretty yes. interesting. I wonder yes. if there's like some sort of evolutionary reason behind that particular behavior that they're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, some of it is a really great way to hydrate. So it's definitely a, an evolutionary thing that these guys have done. And it's not uncommon for other species to do that as well. So it, it is actually, you know, something that we see in quite a few reptile species. How about um, some veggies? You know, you've got our dark leafy greens, but what are some other vegetables that we can give them? Yeah, so vegetables, you want to think, you know, definitely some squash or zucchini, uh, sweet potato, broccoli, peas, beans, okra. And I, I mentioned carrots, but I'm going to be a little specific about that. And I'm going to say grated carrots. So you want to really peel your carrots and maybe give them, you know, some of those small pieces. We have had on occasion uh, bearded dragons that have actually eaten the little chunks of carrots that people have popped up. And if they are some of the smaller bearded dragons, the hatchlings and the juveniles, we have actually had those carrots become an obstruction. So if you do the shavings, then um, you're going to be a lot less likely to cause that. They just, they're, they're denser, starchy, so they take a while to actually break down and they can cause an obstruction. Mm, interesting. That's a good yeah. tip. How about those special treats, the one to 2% of their total dietary intake? Our berries are actually going to have more calcium in them. So your strawberries, your blueberries, raspberry, blackberries, those are all great. Um, They also really like things like papaya, bananas, and melons. You know, they've got some good water in them. So that's a a really nice thing. And they're they're sweet, but they really like the bright colors. So reds, uh, oranges, and yellows, they seem to really take to those. You talked a lot about their mineral and and vitamin needs. Do they need any sort of vitamin supplements? Absolutely. If you think about what they're eating in the wild versus what we're able to provide them in captivity, we're not actually feeding them the items, you know, from their native country. So we honestly, you know, cannot completely mimic that. So we have to take that into account. So supplements, you know, are, are definitely the way to go. So think about some of the, the things we need. There's vitamin supplements. And a lot of times, you know, people talk about calcium supplements for these guys. So, you know, if you can easily dust it on the live prey, if you want to make sure there's some good calcium in that, you can. You want to be careful, um, you know, 
phosphorus with that calcium because then that kind of defeats the purpose. We're trying to boost the calcium and decrease the phosphorus. So if there's a bunch of phosphorus in their vitamin mix, then you're not really completely helping the, the situation. So we definitely want to make sure we've got a good vitamin supplement um, just one to two times a week. But when we start talking about our calcium supplements, that's where we want to make sure that it's just a, a calcium supplement and, and we can dust our prey with it. We can actually even sprinkle it directly onto the salads themselves. So every time I feed live prey, I'm using a calcium supplement. Um, and then I'm usually using the vitamin mix a little bit more on my salad greens. How about like any sort of pellet diets or, or dried food? Yeah, so there's a lot of commercial diets out there specifically for bearded dragons. So the pelleted diets and like the freeze dried or dehydrated food products, they absolutely can be used. They shouldn't necessarily be the sole diet as again, we can't completely mimic it and it can certainly lead to some nutritional imbalances if that's all you're feeding. But I definitely encourage owners to have some on hand and do periodically feed it to them because what happens when you're out of your vegetables and you're out of your fresh leafy greens, you can't get to the pet store to get the insects to feed them. It's nice to have those things on hand and have animals that are occasionally used to having to eat that for when we can't actually get out and get to the store to get the produce or we're having supply issues. So if we have some of those items on hand to use temporarily, then at least we're able to provide something for our, our bearded dragons and not necessarily not have anything to feed them. So they are nice, you know, in the short term on an as needed basis. Yeah, it sounds like it's a an emergency um, mm -hmm. sort of tool to have yep. here in California. You know, we've got earthquakes and wildfires, so we've got a a go bag that's yeah. uh, that's packed up. So it sounds like that would be something in our go bag if we yep. had a, a bearded dragon. Yeah, and, and you have to remember, you know, these guys can get kind of picky. So if you've never fed it to them before. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm out of my greens. I'm going to feed this to them. They may just be like, well, I'm not eating that. So so you do have to kind of put it in the rotation so they're used to eating it because they have personalities and they can absolutely mm -hmm. snub something. Like the toddlers in the household. Yes. <laughs> you had mentioned before about the animals really liking to climb. Are there certain things that they would really enjoy in their enclosures? Yeah. So we definitely want to provide them a good hiding spot. You know, remember these guys, they burrow. So we definitely want to provide them someplace where they can go and get away and feel safe. These are also ideal locations where you can put a little bit of sphagnum moss, moistened sphagnum moss to maybe give them a little bit of humidity inside their little cave, just like they would have had, you know, in the wild when they go down into their burrow. It's a little bit higher humidity in there. It does help benefit some of the skin issues and shedding. Lots of things that they can climb on. So, you know, different types of branches and some rocks, things like that, that they can get up on. It does help to promote nice bone and, and muscle health. If all they're doing is just laying on the bottom of the cage and not moving around a whole lot, and we don't provide them a lot of behavioral enrichment with different things to, you know, climb and move around on, we can have some, you know, pretty unhealthy animals that don't have a lot of good muscle and bone structure to them. What about the setup? You know, what other things do they need within the enclosure? So there are, you know, these nice little starter kits at the pet store. And that's exactly what they are. They're a starter kit, pretty bare bones. They're designed to just get you to bring the animal home and have some place to put it. So this is not usually what I would consider an ideal enclosure for the life of the pet. I will make the push for the front opening enclosures. I try to remind people, you're buying this for your child. So how are you going to get in and access this animal if you've bought one of the starter kits that doesn't actually open in the front? 
what I find is that the animals are less likely to get out and get interaction because you have to do a lot of work to get into the cage itself. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely recommend the front open enclosures and we are starting to see those much more commonly, you know, included with these starter kits. So I think it's pretty common for people to think that what they see at the pet store is the end all be all. There's a lot of other options to explore. There's other areas to even purchase your bearded dragon. So don't be resigned to only using what's available at the pet store. Amazon is one of the places where you can buy some of these larger enclosures. Um, Company called uh, Zen Habitats, uh, Custom Carolina Cages. Those are all people that are building some larger, nicer enclosures, a little lighter weight than just your typical glass enclosures that you can find at pet stores. It sounds like that would be a lot easier, not only for taking the animal out to interact with, but also for putting food and fresh water in there, cleaning the enclosure and just basic, better, more easily accessible husbandry. Yes, exactly. So where would you recommend that people acquire a bearded dragon from? I actually recommend purchasing from a breeder or adopting from a rescue. And and I'll kind of go into exactly why here in a minute. But I also want to mention that I usually recommend getting a bearded dragon that's a little bit older and not that cute, tiny little hatchling that you see at the pet store. These guys that are a little bit older are proven eaters. They're already off to a really good start. We know they're eating. We know they're growing. Unfortunately, the pet stores are often overcrowded with animals from a source that mass breeds these guys. So because of their overcrowding in the pet stores, we see a lot of them that have you know heavy parasite loads or other infectious diseases because these guys are, are shipped in containers together. They're put in cages together, anywhere from four or five to even 10 in some of these, you know, 10 to 20 gallon aquariums at the pet store. So they're exposed to each other and all their droppings. So they just keep spreading things back and forth to each other. Mm-hmm. So as a lot of reptile shows, um, these guys can be a really great source for finding a nice, healthy bearded dragon. You're often face to face with the actual breeder. You can have a little bit more history on the pet itself. So it's really nice to you know look and select a healthy individual. And the breeders can actually help you select a personality you know that is good for your household too. I mean, just think about if you're going to a, a dog breeder, a good breeder is going to say, okay, you know, how often are you home? Who's the dog going to be interacting with? Well, the same thing can go for our bearded dragons. So they can say, you know, I think this animal, you know, is very interactive, is really well handled by children. And same thing with the rescues. The rescues often, you know, have these bearded dragons that are already checked over by a veterinarian. So they're already been, you know, properly vetted. If they had anything wrong with them, they've already had the medical care necessary. And again, that rescue is going to have spent time with them in foster care and know their personalities a little bit better. Yeah. And the rescue would be able to tell you if they've got a reptile veterinarian who's fostering an animal that needs a good home. You know, if it had any prior medical problems that you need to even be aware of. And we always worry about bringing an animal into our home and making sure that our people in the home stay healthy with this new animal. Is there something that we need to be careful of when we're dealing with these particular animals? Yeah, absolutely. So you need to make sure that after handling an animal, handling the items in their cage. So we want to make sure that we're actually washing our hands. This is also the part where I remind you that kissing your bearded dragon 
could give you salmonella. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah. I, everybody wants to kiss and love on their, their animals. And here's where I just have to put that caveat out there that, you know, if you're going to kiss your bearded dragon, you very well could get salmonella. So no matter how much you love your bearded correct. dragon, just <laughs> cuddle, don't kiss. Right. <laughs> You talked a little bit about some of the problems that these animals might come with as far as health issues. What are some of the most common concerns um, that bearded dragon owners have when they come to the vet's office? Yeah. So first of all, where are you going to take your bearded dragon? Really great resource for you is to go to the Association of Reptile Amphibian Veterinarians website. So it's arav.org. And they actually have a button. It's called Find a Vet. And you can click on it and you can put your, you know, location in there and, you know, how many mile radius you're looking for. And it can give you the location of one of those members. We have access one to each other. So that's very helpful. So, you know, we can each uh, contact our reptile and amphibian board certified, you know, counterparts. And we just have a wealth of knowledge just within the organization itself and access to each other. So that's the first thing, you know, go look for your ARE veterinarian in your area. Yeah, that's a great person to have a relationship with because they're going to have so much information and be able to contact other people who may be able to help them if they can't figure something out. How about, um, you know, some of the medical problems that they might have? What are the reasons that they're going to come in? So one of the biggest reasons that we see a lot of our bearded dragons come in is, you know, we haven't defecated and, you know, anywhere from three or four days to a couple weeks or decreased appetite to no appetite. They can be intestinal parasites. It can be females that are in a condition called follicular stasis where our ovary has started to be reproductively active. And so they start producing these follicles. Those follicles, they can literally just stop developing and then just sit there. And they are sitting there taking up space. They feel full. They don't eat. They are still pulling that calcium out of their bones um, to potentially make the shells for the eggs. And, And so their body is just in this really disruptive process. So, you know, these girls can get pretty sick, uh, pretty quick. And unfortunately, the biggest outcome is we have to go to surgery with these girls. So it's definitely a life threatening condition at that point. Um, If they actually produce eggs, you can actually get a dystocia where those eggs get stuck. Again, they're going to be a surgical procedure. Um, So, you know, because there's such a large range of what could be causing your simple constipation and decrease to no appetite, it's definitely important for them to come in and be seen. What about some gastrointestinal causes of that constipation and decreased appetite? Yeah, so we will sometimes see our what we call cloacal prolapses. So the cloaca is the area where all of our output is all coming together. So we can have the cloacal tissue that prolapses out, but you can also have each individual area that empties into the cloaca, your reproductive tract, your GI tract, those can all prolapse too. So those can all happen from constipation, dehydration, parasites, et cetera. All of that is not supposed to come out, but when they're straining and straining and straining, you'll get some of that tissue that does you know, come out and prolapse outside the body. Males can also be overstimulated and they can actually prolapse their hemipenes, which is their reproductive organ. So, you know, they can get sexually excited. So, you know, these guys are potentially surgical emergencies as well. So it's an emergency for these animals to just calm down, get that back in there. Yep. 
we talked about some physical problems. What about some, you know, emotional needs? Do these animals need to be around other bearded dragons to have kind of socialization? Yeah. So that's a, a common question that that we do get asked is that, you know, is my bearded dragon lonely and should I give it a friend? Again, we kind of have to take a step back and think about what are their behaviors in the wild? These guys are not getting their little social groups together and hanging out, you know, and singing and dancing and having a grand time. You know, these guys are are wandering around, you know, by themselves. So they really only come together for, you know, mating purposes. Otherwise, they are solitary animals. So often we will get pet owners that go ahead and purchase a, a second animal. They'll even do a male female and put them together, which is okay if they're, you know, wanting to reproduce, but then we will start to see occasionally fighting. So we are often having to, you know, surgically repair a wound or potentially they've bitten off a tail. Um, So we do actually see trauma from these fights. And it's usually because they've decided it's their territory and they don't want that other animal in there. So in general, I do not recommend keeping bearded dragons together, but keeping them in their solitary cages. And this should come as kind of a relief for the parents out there whose kids really want a bearded dragon. It's better for you to just get one. Have one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot of animals come into the emergency room because the pet owner thought that they were doing the right thing for the animal, but they're actually doing something that may be toxic. Is there anything that bearded dragon owners should avoid that might be not such a great idea? Uh, yes. So the biggest thing that we know about bearded dragons is that there are wonderful, fun little fireflies or lightning bugs, whatever your area likes to call them, are extremely, extremely toxic to bearded dragons. Uh, if they ingest one, they will die. So do not feed lightning bugs to your bearded dragon. There has been one case out of, you know, thousands where the bearded dragon survived, and that was simply because it regurgitated the firefly as soon as it ate it. Um, Otherwise, even 15 minutes later, they just unfortunately do not make it. You had talked about some of the reasons that pet owners bring their bearded dragon in when they're not doing well. What about for wellness visits? What would you recommend for this? So we recommend actually at least an annual wellness visit. Prior to that, what would be referred to as a post-purchase exam. So whether you, you know, purchased them from the breeder, the pet store, we recommend a post-purchase exam bring it to your veterinarian. Let us look at your bearded dragon. Bring us a a fecal sample. Let's get you guys off to a a good start. You know, we will go over your proper husbandry and, you know, make sure that we're getting, you know, the right foods and insect items. Let us increase that lifespan for as much as possible. And that's going to start from the minute you bring your pet home. You know, even start thinking about annual blood work. You know, that's something that we can actually do on our bearded dragons. You know, how are those liver and kidney enzymes? Are they starting to creep up? Let us send out a blood panel, you know, once a year and make sure they're not missing something that we could catch early and potentially do something about. Absolutely. I can't agree more. Having a reptile veterinarian who is knowledgeable about bearded dragons, having them on your team to provide wellness care and to make sure that you're catching things early on when it's easier to address is going to be so important for the animal's long-term health and happiness. Yep. Take your dog and cat to the vet once a year. There's no reason you shouldn't take your bearded dragon once a year as well. Absolutely right. So tell me some of the big takeaway points that you want pet owners to remember when they're caring for their bearded dragon. We talked about so much. My big, big takeaways are that first and foremost, your reptile veterinarian is your absolute best source of information. 
pet stores should not be the only place you visit after bringing your bearded dragon home. The bearded dragons, oh, they can have some expensive health conditions. You know, let's have a plan for your pet. And again, that's something we can talk about when you guys bring them in for that first visit. You know, hey, here are some of the things that we've been seeing. Here are some of the, you know, typical costs. How do you want to go about being able to afford this long term? You know, let us help you make that plan. You know, we absolutely can. And uh, I think my last big one is that uh, remember, variety is the spice of life, even for your bearded dragon. Feed them a varied diet. Don't get stuck in a rut and only feed, you know, one leafy green, one type of insect, one type of vegetable, because you're not going to have a healthy pet. And we've got a ton of links and resources for the pet owners who are listening today. Dr. Johnson has provided so many links. Some veterinarians are very comfortable with managing bearded dragons, but we'll also have the link to the Association of Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians posted on the website and in the show notes. So you can go there if you'd like more information. And I would encourage anyone who has a bearded dragon to join our Facebook group and tell us about your experience, share your pictures, just kind of join the community of pet owners. Um, who, you know, are in a similar situation as you are. Dr. Johnson, we end the episodes uh, with a segment called Scratching the Itch. It's a short segment that um, will highlight something, either a human interest story, a product, a website, something that just provides relief or makes you feel good, hence Scratching the Itch. Do you have something to feature on the Scratching the Itch segment? Yeah, sure. There's actually a, a link to stjude.org. I'm a runner. And for the last 10 years, I have participated in the St. Jude Memphis to Peoria Run. And this is a fundraising event for the children of St. Jude. And what this is, is it's a bunch of runners who are running relay style over the course of about three to three and a half days. And we take turns running 24-7 from Memphis, Tennessee to their sister hospital in Peoria, Illinois. And it is a 465-mile journey. Oh, Um, my God. So it's a pretty crazy thing. And we are literally living about eight to 10 of us to an RV. And then prior to COVID, we would have, you know, a good 20 RVs that were basically all taking turns running this race. So it's not a race. (laughs) That's what what our, our, our people always remind us. And so we're running 465 miles and we always have runners out on the road unless there's lightning. So we're literally from about 11 a.m. on the Wednesday morning that we take off until about 4 p.m. the following Saturday. So everybody takes a turn. On average, out of those 465 miles, I get to run about 30 of them. And I mean, most people would probably be like, oh, but you're running it over a course of, you know, three and a half days. What you don't know is that we don't really sleep in those three and a half days. (laughs) So we get little cat naps. You get maybe two to four hours at the most in between your, your run segments. So I probably average about 12 hours of sleep in those three and a half days. <laughs> oh so my gosh. I, that's, the, that's the harder part is that, you know, you're still trying to run those 30 miles on little to no sleep. And then I yeah. come home and I crash for several days. So I did include that link because we do fundraise. There's a minimum amount we have to raise every year in order to be able to participate. And usually we raise over a million dollars by ourselves from the Memphis to Peoria run. And uh, it takes about $1.3 million a day to run St. Jude. So our three and a half days of running and raising money gives them a close to a day's worth of, of operation costs. That sounds about. like 
an incredible organization mm-hmm. and yep. we'll definitely have the link there for people to look into that if they want to donate to the your fundraising yeah. event. What a cool thing. I mean, you're a little nuts for doing that, but God bless <laughs> you for working for such a great organization. Yeah. yeah. Again, that, that variety is the spice of life doesn't just apply to our bearded dragons, you know, diet. <laughs> it applies to your mental health too. You know, you've just got to have a lot of outlets for what, you know, helps to get you back into a reset mindset and just, you know, learn to let things go. And I mean, it makes a difference for me. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really great episode and I'm hopeful that it allows some bearded dragon owners to establish a relationship with a good veterinarian and use this as a jumping off point. Well, I do too. So I thank you for letting me come on here and uh, give my spiel. And for anyone out there who's listening, I look forward to your next visit with your vet wants you to know. 